Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu, and what we do here, let's talk about the condensing, shall we? We take a piece of pop culture, be it a TV show, movie, piece of music, and we condense it into a brief podcast, but also peel off the outer layers and show you that sitting there live and well in the middle of whatever we may be talking about is actually a real piece of history. Because do you know what? History is everywhere you look. So with that in mind, what are we talking about this time round? Well, the answer is the Netflix short TV series, The Queen's Gambit. So of course, This show, set in the second half of the 20th century, is naturally going to take us to India round about the 6th century AD and, of course, medieval Islamic Spain. So come with me on a journey. I guarantee it's going to be worth your time. So if you're not aware, The Queen's Gambit came out on Netflix in 2020 and was quite the hit. And really, it's a sign once again of Netflix's confidence to try things out. When Netflix first started as a streaming service of its own content, let's be honest, when it first started full stop, it was a mail-in delivery service for DVDs. It was like blockbusters, but you had to send stuff through the post and all of that has faded away and it's become the premier streaming service. Now, I said in a previous podcast that we would talk a little bit about the streaming wars, and I think this is probably a good time to do it because fun fact, about 15 years ago, Blockbusters had the opportunity to buy Netflix and chose not to because at the time it was an inferior product and nobody knew that people would be streaming TV online and clearly DVD slash videos were still going to be the way people were going to consume home entertainment. You can't really blame somebody in the early 2000s not understanding how the world would evolve and change, but it's one of those ones where, you know, I was the fifth Beatle and all these sorts of things where these nearly moments happen. But now, now that we're into the 2020s as a whole, There is some fierce competition and really there are four big players and there are almost innumerable amounts of smaller players. 
Who are the four big players? Well, there's Netflix, which absolutely undeniably around the world has more viewers than any of the other ones I'm going to mention. So Netflix is the big boy. Then we've got, and we can argue about who has the most after that, but we've definitely got the other three being Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, and Apple. And you can see that, well, Amazon and Apple, those are companies with really deep pockets. Disney also isn't doing too badly. Well, I mean, in a normal year, it isn't doing too badly. Uh, in the year 2019, it had seven, I believe, movies that had hit more than a billion dollars. Eight in total, because The Joker also came out that year. That was done by Warner Brothers. But that was the first time you'd ever had eight films sort of reach more than a billion dollars. Also, that was a year, not just over a billion dollars, but you had... Avengers Endgame, which is the single biggest grossing movie of all time, not adjusted for inflation. So when Disney's firing on all cylinders, it is a monster at the moment. It owns Star Wars, it owns Marvel, it's got its own Disney franchises, etc. Obviously, it's got the theme parks. So with all that in mind, wow. Except, of course, it's suffering like everybody else through the, the COVID era, the pandemic times. So it has some problems. One of the problems is it's decided that it is a child-friendly brand, which is absolutely fine. But it does mean that when it comes to its streaming, while it owns Fox and owns a number of more adult brands, for example, Family Guy, the reality is you're not going to put that on Disney+. Plus. So whereas the Marvel movies are great and Star Wars is fun and The Mandalorian is awesome, probably do a podcast about The Mandalorian at some point, there just isn't enough content on Disney+. Plus. It might throw out Hamilton once a year, but that is not going to get people returning. Again, The Mandalorian's great, but it's eight episodes. And now it's going to have lots more TV series. Again, sort of rated, in essence, 12 PG-13 in America. But they've got to come thick and fast, because meanwhile, Netflix, every week, there's a new documentary, movie, TV show, etc. So whereas, undeniably, Disney has the brand, you can't get much bigger than Marvel and Star Wars. Netflix doesn't have anything to equate to that. Oh, we've got The Witcher's TV series? Yeah, that was fun. But we'd like to see more, and uh, The Witcher, with the best will in the world, is not as well known as Star Wars. So yes, you might be sitting there going, hang on, Jim, what about HBO and Stars? Well, those are more sort of like satellite channels, and it's a bit different. You know, they're, they're a different entity than just the pure streaming. Now, there are lots of other ones you know, specific to America. You've got one of the main terrestrial stations that has got Peacock, for example. Then you've got HBO Max. And, you know, there are these other ones which are sort of semi-streaming, but also connected to other entities as well. But around the world, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Disney is what we've got to talk about. So with that in mind, Something like Netflix needs to keep pushing stuff out. And it spends billions every year. And I mean that with a B, billions every year in terms of content. It is a company that has huge debts. It's maybe turning a profit now, but it's got to dig itself out of a hole. And it, in essence, it's the biggest gamble in entertainment history. Now, Netflix, because all it is is a streaming channel, unlike Disney, which has, as I said, theme parks and cinema releases and so on and so forth. Netflix has to make this work because if it gets crushed by Disney, it, it has no plan B. 
Meanwhile, you've got Amazon Prime, which you might well be getting because you want to get your parcels quicker. As one joke said, Amazon Prime, the only TV station that can get you your suntan lotion tomorrow. And that's true, and Amazon again has massively deep pockets, but it hasn't yet generated the TV that everybody's talking about. Netflix has, ha has had Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, The Witcher. They're better at coming up with TV shows that capture people's imagination. Maybe not Game of Thrones, that's again HBO, but Netflix is very good at this stuff. And then there's Apple. And I've watched three TV series from Apple and they were all enjoyable, particularly the morning show, but Again, it just hasn't caught the imagination. People are just not talking about the Apple TV shows. Again, Apple has incredibly deep pockets. They're going to keep running this for a while. They want to get a slice of the pie. But until they start producing the sheer quantity of stuff of Netflix, they are never going to catch up. And just because I have Apple products, and the reality is I got it free for a year. So why not give it a go? But you know what? Would I really want to pay for it when I've watched a total of three TV shows? I mean, I like Ted Lasso. Is he worth eight quid a month? Probably not. And there's only one series a year. So yeah, Apple has to up its game in terms of content. A bit like Disney as well. Why should I buy this streaming service if it's just got stuff I've already seen or I have to pay for it? In the case of Apple, again, and Amazon Prime, it's really more of a platform to try and sell you stuff. Yes, you can watch the free stuff, but it's constantly throwing in your way. Hey, there's this new deal or you could subscribe to this channel over here for money. And it's like, well, Netflix never does that. There's no advertising on Netflix. It's not trying to hassle me for more money. I pay my money once a month and I get the actual TV that I'd like. But then again, it's movies are pretty lousy. So I can't tell you who's going to win this. This is a gamble. This is a roll of the dice worth tens of billions of dollars and there is no clear winner. Netflix has no right to be number one in the next 20 years time, but they're doing a lot to make sure that they're sort of battening down the hatches and resisting the storm that's going on around them. Disney is picking up ahead of steam, and there are a lot of children out there who just want to sit there and watch all the various kids' TV shows. One of my boys is slowly working through the 31 series of The Simpsons on, on Disney+. Plus. You know, that's a lot of content to dig through. Each one has their kind of own strengths and weaknesses. In theory, if you're just going to talk about money and diversity, probably Amazon should win. But until they start coming up with some knock your dead TV series, that's probably not the case. So going back to Netflix and The Queen's Gambit, is Netflix kind of been known more for contemporary dramas? Like I mentioned, Orange is the New Black. If you don't know that one, it's about a female prison in the modern day. And House of Cards, about political corruption in the modern day. But then they had the monster hit of The Crown, which was quite a change of, of scenery for them because it was largely British rather than American. And it was a period piece. I mean, admittedly, not a thousand years ago, but it was still from another time, which means that they were going to have to spend a fortune on clothing and vehicles and, and obviously location shooting as well for something like that, too. So The Crown open the door for some other stuff that could be potentially of its time. And the interesting thing is Netflix is always kind of willing to give it a go. It is far more experimental. The thing with Disney is they spent billions to get Star Wars, so of course they're going to keep pumping out Star Wars stuff. It'd be insane not to use the brand. And they've used it very well with The Mandalorian. But Disney isn't really interested in coming up with completely new IPs you've never heard of, intellectual property rights. So whereas with Netflix, they'll 
give almost anything a go. And so we come to The Queen's Gambit, a really interesting TV show because while on the surface you might be sitting there going, oh yeah, I've kind of heard about chess championships in the like the 1960s and things like that. You're right. And also the rivalry between the Soviet Union and, and the West. You're right. But every single person in this show is made up. And I like that because again, comparing it to The Crown, probably another one I'm going to do at some point, is I was always frustrated with season one of The Crown because I was sitting there going, why? Why is there drama? We know she's A, still alive, and B, hasn't been deposed. So what possible drama is there? And I was very much shouted down. And in season one, there was a lot of plaudits about how close it was to history and how it sort of showed the royalty from a slightly different point of view and how it was trying to teach you kind of about post-war Britain really through the lens of royalty rather than just it was only about Queen Elizabeth II. And I get that. However, in season two, it ran into the problem I had already said in that there isn't any drama here. The Queen doesn't go from rags to riches. Like I say, she doesn't get involved in a war or anything like this. She's the Queen. And also, if you want to know what happens next. I mean, this stuff is still within living memory. And so from season two onwards, more and more stuff was made up to become dramatic. And indeed, where by the time season four came out, which was roughly about the same time as The Queen's Gambit, there was a huge amount of howling in Britain about, is any of this true anymore? Which does show you that the writers have kind of picked a topic where there just isn't enough drama. If you have to keep making stuff up, it's probably not a good bit of history for you to write drama about. How about Queen Elizabeth I? People tried to assassinate her. There were epic battles around her. There were sort of insurgencies and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, there's been a lot written about her and a lot of dramas around her. But yeah, that at least you can see why, because there's a lot of stuff happening in her reign. But I digress. So basically, The Queen's Gambit hangs on this character, Beth Harmon, Elizabeth Harmon, and she is completely made up. She's played by Anya Taylor-Joy. And I'm telling you right now, this 24-year-old has just come all the way up you know, from an aspiring actress to a big name. I mean, just in 2020 or, you know, the, a few years around that, she's obviously in The Queen's Gambit. She, same year, she was in the new movie adaptation of Emma, Emma Full Stop, technically. She's also been in Peaky Blinders and she's been in the big Hollywood movie Split and the sequel Glass. So, wow. People like to say, oh, she, she's, arri she, she's, she's arriving. She's a name to look out for. And as far as I'm concerned, she has arrived. I mean, technically last year also she was in the new Mut Mutants movie, but that film has been trying to be released for more than two years. It was insane, the story behind that one. They just didn't know when they could release it. But I digress. So Anya Taylor-Joy is a joy in this TV show. But in a way, she's the cipher of which to look through everybody else. And to be fair to the writers, they've decided, as I said, to go the opposite way of the crown in the sense of they've captured the style and moment and the the stresses, the overt pressure on what is ultimately just a board game and how much politics and power was placed on it in the second half of the 20th century, which to me is a fascinating idea. How any game, I mean, when we, we all kind of know that the Soviets and the West sort of like challenged each other on the field of battle of chess. But why not Snakes and Ladders? Trivial Pursuit. You know, there are lots of other board games. Scrabble. There are literally international tournaments of Scrabble. But chess has always had a very special place in civilized society. 
And if you like, compared to those other games I've mentioned, chess is an awful lot older. Something like Trivial Pursuit literally came out in the 1980s. So, yeah, they weren't going to be playing it with Russians in the 1960s. Something like that. Scrabble's been around for quite some time. Hey, they could have played bingo. But a lot of games, I mentioned Snake and Ladders over in America. It's... It's ladders and shoots, I think. It's something and shoots, as in like a slide, rather than a snake. I mean, let's face it, snakes are a weird thing to teach children about as a fun thing in a game. Although, of course, you have to slide down. A lot of these games are to do with luck. The thing about chess is it's about pure strategy and logic. It's about planning. It's one of these games that's referred to as an open game. And what's that? what that means is, unlike, let's say, Cluedo... You don't know what everybody's got, what your opponent's got, or indeed the entire lay of the board in something like Cluedo or Scrabble, because you've got a big bag of letters and you're not sure. But with chess, everything you need to know is sitting there on the board right now. Quick question for you. How many pieces does a chess side have, black or white? So how many do they have? And indeed, what's the dimensions of the board as well? quickly for you to work it out? Well, the answer is it's 16 pieces per player and it's an eight by eight square board. So it's perfectly square. Everybody's got exactly the same kind of pieces. Nobody has an advantage. Although, if you look at the statistics over the many years of chess being played that it's been recorded, you can see that white, because they go first, has a very fractionally slight advantage. Now, please don't think that if you're playing Gary Kasparov that because I'm white, I'm going to win. No, ability absolutely has to be part of the conversation here. But where did it come from? And why do we end up playing it? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So basically, it's, it's a little bit contested. Everything things get murky because, of course, what became important later wasn't necessarily written down when it was first evolving. But it absolutely unequivocally, it comes from an Indian game called Chaturanga. And it seems to have come from India, or it seems to have evolved into a strategy game round about the 6th century AD. So if you're going, talking about Europe, you're talking at the time where the Western Roman Empire has just recently collapsed. The Eastern Roman Empire is actually doing pretty okay. So that's why, please, it is worth remembering, if you ever see a movie and you see some chess players playing chess in a Roman toga or something like that, that never happened. Julius Caesar never played chess. But it is interesting over the years. I, I, look, I'll come back to the evolution. But because this is such a well-known game, also you don't need to have a language in common and it's pretty portable too. There are some incredibly famous people who've played chess. A lot of the presidents in the, the first hundred years uh, were well known for playing chess. You, you could have evil people. Adolf Hitler apparently used to play chess. And some great people too. Albert Einstein. So, you, you know, or Napoleon is another person who played chess. And does that really even surprise you? So the point is that it was a, a sign of culture that you could play chess. I am going to put my cards on the table, however, which is the wrong way to play chess, I think we can all agree, and say this, I never liked chess. Now, don't get me wrong, I can play it, I am okay at it, but for all the reasons that it's kind of seen as this noble other type of board game is the reason I don't like it. Because in essence, as I said, it's an open game. Everybody knows what's going on. It's pure logic. And I'm not a purely logical individual. But more importantly is, it is in essence a, a combat simulator. You have these two armies facing each other across a field of battle. But how many times do you think in a field of battle, people have fought on a perfectly flat surface with exactly equal forces of exactly the same types of troops. I'll give you the answer to that one. Never. The other thing is, of course, that the amount of battles where there was a miscommunication, which led to the cavalry going in the wrong direction or setting off too late, or suddenly fog came in, or suddenly rain came down so the muskets wouldn't fire, or the ancillary army arrives too late or just in the nick of time. As soon as you start studying any kind of military history, you realize that you can be the best general in the world, but sometimes it just ain't your day. There's just bad luck happening. So with that in mind, my problem with chess is this. There's just no luck in it whatsoever. It is pure skill. And you might turn around and say, well, this sounds like sour grapes, but I'm going to put it out there. I think chess would be improved with just one rule change. Everything happens the same way as normal in chess. It's just that when you take a piece, you roll a dice. That's it. You just, just roll a dice. And if it's anything other than one, everything happens as normal. Your pawn takes their rook or whatever. However, if it's a one, then the piece that should be taken actually takes the attacking piece. 
So you have a one in six chance of things actually not going your way. Suddenly, there's a little bit more chaos on the battlefield, which is a more realistic representation of what it's trying to show in the first place, a battle. And secondly, yeah, sometimes the grandmasters might be a little unlucky. So with that in mind, you like, hey, gem chess, it has not caught on in any way. And let's go back to India. So Chaturanga is not, or chat as it was sort of abbreviated, was not exactly the same as chess. But we start having pieces on the board. I mean, they have a piece called the elephant, for example, rather than the castle. So you've got the basics of this grid. You've got uh, clearly an army. Everybody's got an individual amount of the same amount of pieces. It's then taken to Persia. And actually, the, the very earliest examples of pieces that we found is from Central Asia rather than India, Samarkand has the earliest basically board of what we would call Chaturanga. So all of this is happening, you know, in the 600s, you know, in the 500s, 600s, 700s. And it finally comes to Europe in the 900s, where it's already started to evolve and it's looked a bit closer to what we would call chess today. Interestingly, in Arabic, we have the earliest chess manual from the 840s. So that's about 1,200 years ago. And it shows you that this game, India at that time, had a mixture of Muslims there, yes, it's true, but also had a majority Hindu, and plus there's Buddhists and Jains and Sikhs as well. So for, for this game to be that popular in, a, in the subcontinent, which had so many different languages and religions, shows you it's just a good game. And then it spread into places like the Sassanid Empire, which is sort of modern-day well, Persia, Iran. And so you were into a different culture completely and different language. And then it spreads into the Middle East, another language. Yes, obviously Islamic. And it then eventually arrives in Europe in the ninth century. It doesn't arrive in, let's say, Bulgaria, you know, one of the more easterly areas of, of Europe. Instead, it arrives in the Iberian Peninsula, which in the 800s and 900s, the vast majority, almost all of it, was under an Islamic state and series of kingdoms and caliphdoms. So with that in mind, it shows you that the thing that's forgotten about with Spain, there's this phrase, the Reconquista. And this is where Spain has sort of rewritten its language or its history. I've been to Spain a couple of times and I was kind of horrified when I was traveling around southern Spain where I'd done my research and read up on it. And for starters, the Spanish Civil War, which happened in the 1930s and was in many ways a precursor to World War II, I was in some places where some interesting stuff had happened from the Spanish Civil War. Nobody wanted to talk about it at all. It just did not exist as far as they was concerned. And I could kind of understand that because maybe it was grandparents or, or whatever that were part of this, part of that bloody and violent time. However, when it came to the Christian conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, first of all, it wasn't the Reconquista. It wasn't like they'd been kicked up north and they'd lost it all to these evil invaders. And then three weeks later, they're coming back again. Well, no, they decided to start pushing back and it would take until 1492 to reclaim the entire Iberian Peninsula. To this day, as of recording, parts of southern Spain have spent more time under Islamic rule than under Christian rule. And make no mistake about it, the Christians that came coming in in, let's say, 1200 AD were from a very different form of Christianity and social construct and civilization than the Christians who had been milling around the area around about, let's say, 750 AD. 
you know, 500 years earlier. So it's a myth to call it a reconquista. And actually, Muslims and Jews live together relatively peacefully. Occasionally there could be violence, but in reality for the Jewish population of Spain and, and Portugal, it was much safer being on the Iberian Peninsula than it would be in France at the same time, for example. And there was this great renaissance, this Islamic flourishment of mathematics and science, and to a certain extent art, but I mean by that more like calligraphy. And this golden age of Islam started around about 800 AD. And we actually know the specific date of when it finished, and that's 1258 when the Mongols came into Baghdad and killed everybody. And the terrible thing, as I mentioned before, is the river Tigris ran black with ink because they threw all the books in the river. So, yeah, you've just lost all your information at that point. So some people can argue, oh, did the Islamic world ever recover? Let's not go into that. We're talking about chess here. But the point is, in this highly cultured multinational, transcontinental civilization. There was an incredible changing of ideas, sharing of ideas. And you know, one of the things that, for example, that a lot of people don't realize is the reason why we got things like Socrates and Plato is they weren't hidden away from those evil inquisitors. But no, they were picked up by the Muslims, translated into Arabic and preserved throughout the Middle Ages in Arabic. And then they were translated back into Latin and Greek later on in the Renaissance era. So you know, there is a, actually a huge connection between East and West, which is now being misremembered as sort of like a, a clash of civilizations. I've mentioned how in the 840s, Arabs in the Middle East were actually writing manuals on how to play chess. Then we get to 1475, where finally Spain and Italy, and, you know, Spain, obviously partly Islamic still, they changed some of the rules of chess. And now we've got what we would consider chess chess, if that makes sense to you. We've now got chess. But, you know, that's still at the time of the Renaissance. So it's been around for a long, old time. I'm going to jump forward a little bit further to the 1870s. We get a Czech man called Wilhelm Steinitz, and he's the first man to not only start, he's writing his own books on how to win chess. It's not just how to play, but he's now coming up with strategies and things like that. So it's, it's Steinitz that's actually seen as the man who turned chess into a sport. Now, it's not a physical sport, but I guess as, as much as athletics are a workout for your body, chess genuinely is a workout for your brain. You just think one move ahead. You know, am I going to be able to take that castle or whatever, knight, rook, whatever, and then you're not going to do very well in it. You need to be thinking entire strategies. You need to be be thinking 10 moves ahead. You also need to be anticipating what kind of system is your competitor using. And it was Wilhelm Steinitz who actually came up with that. And indeed, he was in 1873 considered to be the person that you need to go to. And, and in 1886, he actually beat a German. And that's the point where he's considered to be the first grandmaster. There have been many great players in the past, as I mentioned, you know, pretty much anybody who was considered articulate and educated prior to the 20th century probably was an avid chess player. It was just a sort of sport that you would want to do. And what you've got, jumping forward a little bit further, to 1948, just after World War II, we get the Fédération Internationale des Échecs, which is obviously the French for the, basically the International Federation of Chess. But it's FID 
E and the FIDE is still to this day the international body that puts out tournaments, makes sure, you know, ranks people globally and things like that. And the first person to win the FIDE in 1948 is Mikhail Botvinnik. Mikhail Botvinnik was obviously from the Soviet Union, you can work that out, and what we now have is the Cold War played as a chess game, because pretty much, let's say really from the 1950s, from the 1950s to the 1980s, it was Soviet players who were the ones to beat. They were the, they were the big names out there. And going back to the, the Queen's Gambit is we get a guy in it called Benny Watts. He's American. He's kind of like a child prodigy of chess. He's, you know, everybody's stunned by him. Now, Benny is made up but he's based on a real American player who, who bears an uncanny resemblance to Benny in terms of background and style, is Boris Spassky. Now, unlike his name might say, he's actually American. No, sorry, not Boris Spassky, Bobby Fischer. Apologies. Bobby Fischer is the real one. Benny Watts is the made-up one. So, yeah, so Bobby Fischer was this kind of young child prodigy, and he was the rising star for a few years. He scared the likes of Boris Spassky. Sorry, he was, he was one of the Soviets who uh, Bobby was actually playing chess against. And this was seen as a sign of who has the upper hand in intellect, in strategy, because with all these nuclear weapons pointed at each other, you really didn't want to test it out for real. So let's test it out on the board game, which actually gave it a, you know, chess had always been seen as this sort of game of kings, if you like. But now it had this extra thing of the Cold War by proxy. And to show you how, you know, tense things were, when you get to the 1980s, 1980 Olympics, Summer Olympics in Moscow, America decided to boycott it, decided not to go at all because the Soviet Union had just invaded this, this place called Afghanistan and started the Soviet-Afghan war. And how dare the Soviets go into Afghanistan because it's just its own independent country? You know, America changed its mind a, a few years later. But anyway, it does show you how sports and politics were absolutely intertwined during the Cold War era. To give you a, a slightly silly example, I know I mentioned this in the past, when you get to, to Rocky IV, they're again doing the Cold War through sport, this time boxing, having an American fighter, a, a Russian. Now, the thing is that, you know, I've been very careful about Soviet Union because the Soviet Union includes many countries, not just Russia. Yeah, that's the big one, but Belarus, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, all these places, Mongolia, for example, there are just loads and loads of countries that are actually part of the Soviet Union. So Russia and Soviet Union are never the same thing. But what was at least nice with all these nuclear weapons, all these millions of men, fighter jets, bombs, missiles, etc., is that you still had these two ideologically opposed nations or powers willing to sort of test their mettle through a game rather than through bloody war. So I think that's perhaps a good place to, to finish there. If you haven't checked out the, the Queen's Gambit, it's only seven episodes. It's, it's seven episodes and done. There's not going to be a season two of the Queen's Gambit. So Queen's Gambit, I didn't actually say, it's actually one of the strategies that you can use in chess. There are lots of names, cool names for different things like Fool's Mate and things like that. Lots of different strategies there. If you, if you aren't the person who can enter the world's strongest man, you might want to check out something like the Queen's Gambit or play a game of chess. Thanks as always for listening. As I'll say, I'll say it at the end. 
please do click subscribe, give us a review. If you could tell one other person, if each one of our listeners could tell one other person, well, hey, we'll double our listenership. But please spread the word. Please send out links. Really, it all helps us here at Condensed Histories. Thank you very much for your time. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.